Church, we continue our series going verse by verse through this book of Philippians. And last week, we began one of the most important and beautiful and one of probably the earliest paragraphs in the entire New Testament. And that's this poem, this hymn here in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And last week, we began the first half of the hymn, which we called the first stanza. And there, in verses 6 through 8, we saw Jesus' humility his humility. And we asked three questions about Jesus. First, we asked, who is Jesus? And we saw the hymn tell us that he's clearly God himself. And then second, last week, we asked, and what did he do? And we saw that our Jesus didn't hold on to his exaltation only for himself being God. Instead, he emptied himself, poured himself out in humility, which all it means is that he became truly one of us. And then third, and finally, we asked him, how low did he go? And we saw last week, and this is how our first stanza ended, that he died. He died. But not only did he die, he died on a cross, which was a Roman torture device, so that's horrendous. But not only that, him dying on the cross shows that he was condemned and cursed. Condemned and cursed for his people, for us. And so that was just verses 6 through 8 last week, the first stanza of our hymn. But now that brings us to this week, where we'll finish off this poem and we'll cover our second stanza there. And if last week was the infinite humility of Jesus, him leaving his infinite throne, becoming a human being, and going to the cross, now this week we're going to see the result of that, which is the infinite exaltation of Jesus. That Jesus was raised, that he is highly exalted, and that one day he will be praised by everyone, everywhere. And to be clear, this poetic order that you just saw there of humility in stanza one and then exaltation in stanza two is purposeful there by the early church. Because it's the flow of the Bible from beginning to end, it's the flow of the gospel, and it's the flow of Jesus' life himself. Humility and then exaltation. And you can see this connection even at the very beginning of our text here this morning. So look down at your Bibles, even at just the first two words of verse 9 there. Therefore, God. In other words, Jesus was infinitely humble in verses 6 through 8, and therefore, as a result of his humility, he's exalted. And not only that, the text says, therefore, God. And this is significant because Jesus was the subject of verses 6 through 8. He left his throne. He humbled himself. He went to the cross. But now, because of what Jesus did, God the Father now exalts him. And so this is the flow of the Bible, the gospel, Jesus' life, and our hymn here. And just as a quick application before we really even begin, this is the flow, this humility then exaltation is the flow for us as God's people as well. Because the Bible is clear from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament that God uh, exalts the humble, but the prideful he brings down. Right? The stories in the Old Testament taught this over and over. The Psalms and the Proverbs teach it again and again. And Jesus himself says it clearly when he walked on this earth, like in Matthew 23, where he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so the idea throughout the whole Bible is be humble. And in God's timing, he will exalt you. 
Now, now what that exaltation is for each of us compared to Christ is obviously different, right? He is exalted as the Lord of all, while we are exalted as those who are then able to enjoy him and enjoy one another forever. But the flow is still the same. We are to humble and humble and humble ourselves. We're to realize it's not all about us. We're supposed to try to live for others and love others, but we do it with a future expectation and promise from God that in His timing, in His way, He will exalt us. Not that that will be the center of the universe or anything, but He will raise us up. He will change us and He will enable us to enjoy Him, one another, in this renewed world forever. That finally brings us back to where we are here in verses 9 through 11. So this is the infinite exaltation of Jesus Christ. But now to see what's fully here, like last week, we're going to ask three simple questions. And two of the questions will be about Jesus himself, and then the last one will be about ourselves. So we left off in verse 8 there with Jesus. He just died on the cross. But now to cover verses 9 through 11, the three questions simply will be, first, what happened to Jesus? Second, what will happen to Jesus? And then third, what does this have to do with us? Very simple. What happened to Jesus? What will happen to Jesus? And what does this have to do with us? Or even more basically, first, Jesus in the past and present. Second, Jesus in the future. And then third, us. And as we go, we'll see how this applies to ourselves. So with that said, let's start with our first question. Our first question again is, what happened to Jesus? So he's dead on the cross in verse 8. Then what happened to Jesus? And for this, we're just going to read verse 9. So let's do, let's do that now. Look down at your Bibles. This is Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So we, we'll just read this verse for now because here we see two things that happened to Jesus in the past. Or specifically, two things that God did to Jesus after his death on the cross. And you can see those two things easily in the text yourself. And the first one is right after his death on the cross in verse 8. You can see the text say, quote, that God highly exalted Christ. And this high exaltation is a good way to summarize some things that happened in history. And that's the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and then what has been called the session of Jesus. The high exaltation says that all in one simple phrase. And to begin, therefore, that means that God highly exalting Jesus means that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so the resurrection is implied there, and that's because the Jesus of Nazareth, who died in verses 6 through 8, wouldn't be highly exalted if he wasn't alive. So the resurrection is implied there. So that's first. But then along with this, his high exaltation included what has been called his ascension. And that's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus was raised back up to heaven to be back in heaven with God the Father. And, and to be clear here, just in case anyone out here this morning is a little skeptical of that this morning, this doesn't mean that Jesus is now in outer space or anything. And I, I mean that, it might sound funny, but I've heard, and maybe you have too, some people who are skeptical of Christianity say things like, well, now we've explored a lot of outer space, and there's no heaven up there, and there's no Jesus up there. But the Bible's clear. That there's another true realm, right, that's part of reality, that although we can't sense or see with our own senses, it's equally real. 
right? That's where God is. That's where the angels are. And when he ascended, that's where Jesus went. So that's the resurrection, the ascension. But then finally, part of Jesus' high exaltation is what has been called his session. His session. Now that's maybe a term you haven't heard much before, and that's okay. But this word session is just an old word that means sitting down. That's all it means. It means to sit down. And that's what's being talked about here too. So Jesus is raised from the dead. He ascends back to heaven. But then, not only that, importantly, he sits down. That's a big biblical idea. And well, all that means is that he sits down once again on the throne as the rightful Lord of all as he is. So that's the first thing God did. He highly exalted Christ. So we'll come back to what this high exaltation means, why it's high in a second. But for now, we emphasize this because this is what happened in history. Jesus was raised. He ascended back into heaven, and then he sat down, and that's where he is right now, as ruler of all. That, thing's, that unleashed the second thing God did in verse 9 to Jesus. And that's how he, quote, bestowed on him the name that's above every name. You can see that as well. I think this is mentioned with Christ's exaltation because this is a big part of it. After his death and resurrection, Jesus is on his throne and God bestows on him once again the, quote, name that is above every name. Now, in terms of what this name is, there's really two options, right? It could be the name Jesus, could be the name Lord. In verse 10, you can see it supports him being, the name being Jesus, that the name of Jesus. Well, verse 11 supports the idea of it being Lord, because every tongue is confessing that Jesus is Lord. And to be honest, I, and, and I think most biblical people will say that, uh, or biblical scholars will say that it's probably Lord here, because that, for a Jew, was the name above every name, right? The name Yahweh was the name Lord. But either way, the main point remains that at his exaltation, in history, God the Father once again gave Jesus this clear title that he is Lord reigning over all. And so I know that's a lot, but to answer our first question, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was exalted, highly exalted, and then he was given the name above every name. That's where he is right now. That then brings us back to this term, highly exalted. Highly exalted. I want to focus on this a bit more this morning, because as we'll see, this applies a lot to us in a certain way, but also it's intentionally emphatic there in the poem, as you can see for yourself. And I say that because the early church who probably wrote this hymn and Paul who's using it didn't use just a normal word for exalted here. Instead, that there is one word, and it's an emphatic word, and it's the word exalted with the preposition hyper, and that's an English word we now use, or super, added to the front of it. In Greek, it's just huper. And huper just meant high, or above, or over. And so the idea here is that Jesus wasn't just exalted, but he was above exalted, highly exalted, over exalted. And I think this is helpful for us because, especially after last week, you may be sitting here and thinking, if you're following, but this exaltation here doesn't seem to be that big of a deal because we believe that Jesus already was exalted as the Lord before he came to earth, right? So why is it a big deal that he's exalted again? And thinking like that in one sense is sort of, is sort of right because it's true that Jesus was exalted, he was the infinite God before he came to earth. So in one sense that's true. 
And yet what's also true, this is why it's helpful, is that in another sense, the Bible teaches here and elsewhere that Jesus' post-gospel exaltation is in a certain sense even a higher exaltation. Meaning, yes, he was God before, fully and forever the Son of God was the second person of the Trinity. But now, after his death and resurrection, his lordship is in a sense higher. And why? Because now the one ruling of the universe is not just the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as he was before. Instead, now the one ruling the universe, the Lord, is the God-man. The one who came to this fallen earth, who died in love to redeem it, who rose from the grave and who's going to come back and reconcile all things. And so in this way, his exaltation compared to what he had before can be said to be high, super. Not because he wasn't God before, he was. But now he's the God who accomplished this gospel, reigning once again over all. And in this way, and here's the point, as strange as it might sound to us, the Bible does teach here and elsewhere that this gospel happening glorifies God in a way that he wouldn't have been glorified if this gospel never occurred. And one last thing on this. So I know this is a lot, but if you're tracking, this also means, this is awesome, that the storyline of the universe... The storyline of the entire cosmos, the storyline of all of history, of creation, of fall, of redemption, of restoration, is something where God allowed evil and sorrow to happen. Also that in the end, something even greater could come about. So that something even brighter could shine in the midst of darkness. Because that's ultimately what the Bible is saying here in this idea that Jesus is highly exalted. He was exalted before. That's what verse 6 told us. But he's now highly exalted, all because God allowed the darkness and sin and sorrow to enter in, all so that Jesus could die for his people, save his people, and all so that the glory of God's grace might shine more brightly in the end. And I bring that up not only because it's in the text, because then, but because then we can apply this to our lives as well. Because if this is the storyline of the entire universe, if this is the storyline of all history that God has intended to allow certain evil and sorrow to happen so that the beauty of his grace can shine more brightly, if that's the story of the universe, then we can be sure that he is doing that in a million ways in the lives of his people as well. God didn't need to create the world. He didn't need to allow sin to enter. Or he could have just snuffed out sin as soon as it came in, but he didn't. And why? So that his son could be highly exalted. So that the gospel could happen, and so that sinners like you and me could enjoy salvation and grace. And so similarly, there are things in your and my life that he's allowing to happen sorrows and pain and darkness also that because they're happening an even greater more beautiful ending could come about from it an even higher exaltation if you will and so once again our first question what happened to jesus we saw he was raised ascended sat down 
And he, we saw he was bestowed and given the name above all. And then ultimately we saw he was highly exalted. Meaning this Jesus now has a unique place as the God-man, the Savior who accomplished this gospel, reigning over all until he comes back to make everything right again. Which leads us now to our second question. So we ask what happened to Jesus, meaning in the past and where Jesus is right now. But now we'll ask about the future, asking what will happen to Jesus. And I'm sure you might know the answer from our text, but let's read it together again and dig into what the Bible's saying. So let's just read all of verses 9 through 11 again. And we're asking what will happen to Jesus. Look down at your Bibles, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what will happen to Jesus in the future? Well, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord as he is. And it will all be to the glory of God the Father. And to break that down first, just notice the emphatic universality of what's said here. Right? Verse 10, every knee will bow. Verse 11, every tongue will confess. Every single one. But not only that, the universality goes even further. It's not just every one, but it will be every one everywhere. Every knee will bow, quote, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that threefold division there, when, when said like that, when combined like that, was simply a way of talking about everywhere. Right? Because in heaven represented the realm of God and the angels. On earth represents here and us and the people here. And then under the earth was just an idiomatic way of talking about Satan and the demons. And so this is not, let's be clear, this is not just every single human being on earth, but this is every single conscious being who has ever existed. And what will everyone everywhere be doing? Well, everyone everywhere will bow to Jesus meaning they will reverentially acknowledge and even worship him as the Lord and the Savior as he is, and everyone everywhere will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. It is truly God himself. <laughs> and so taken together, verses 9 through 11 are saying that the day is coming when everyone everywhere will look at this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth from verses 6 through 8, who came, died, and rose, and they all, and we all, will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Which brings us to the last phrase, verse 11. So why will this all happen? Well, the last line there of the poem lets us know. It will happen to the glory of God the Father. And this is actually more significant than we might at first think. And to understand the significance of it, we need to turn to an Old Testament text. Because you may know these verses from Philippians 2 really well, but what is maybe sometimes less known is that these verses here are actually basically a citation and a fulfillment of something God, the Lord, Yahweh, said in the Old Testament. So we're going to go there. This is Isaiah 45. If you want to turn your Bibles there, Isaiah 45. We're starting verse 21. Of course, as always, you can just listen as you want, but I really encourage you to see this for yourself. So Isaiah 45, and we're going to start in verse 21 and go through the end of the chapter through verse 25. And remember, this is the Old Testament. Right? This is Yahweh, the creator God, speaking here. And this is what he says in Isaiah 45, verses 21 through 25. 
Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And then here it is. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against me, against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so there's a lot in there. But notice verse 21, God is clear. He is the only God and the Savior. Verse 22, salvation comes from turning to him. And again, let's be clear, there is no other gods. Verse 23, which is cited in Philippians 2, every knee will bow to God and every tongue will swear allegiance to him. And then finally, verses 24 and 25, the Lord gives justification, which is the gospel, and all who are saved in him shall glory. So I hope you see that for yourself, because in short, what Isaiah 45 is saying is that this is the Lord, Yahweh, the Savior, the only God. And he's saying that being the only God, for people to be saved, they must bow down to him. And one day, everyone will bow to him and confess to him and glorify him. And so now you can turn back to Philippians 2, 9 through 11 if you want. But now with that covered... Maybe you're seeing why Isaiah 45 is so significant as a backdrop to Philippians 2. Because what's amazing in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, is that Isaiah 45 is finally happening here. But how is it happening? Well, people are saved by, people are bowing down to, and people are confessing to Jesus. And so the question is, how does this work? Is this a contradiction of Isaiah 45? Because who's the Savior here? And who, who's God here? Is it the Father in verse 11? Is it Jesus in verses 9 through 10? And you probably know the answer. And that's why, once again, we see with crystal clarity that the early church believed that Jesus Christ is God. Because if he is the Lord from Isaiah 45, then he is the only God. But also, even more than that, here in this poem, we now see the Trinity. Because what wasn't known when Isaiah 45 was written was how the Lord God would accomplish all of this. Right? He said back then that he was the Savior. He said that people would be saved by trusting in him. But what he didn't say is how this would happen. But now we know. And we know that this salvation would be through his Son and people would be saved by trusting in his son. Which brings us back to the ending in verse 11. So Isaiah 45 is fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but that's not all. It's also to the glory of God the Father. So all this means that the, the glory of the Son praising Jesus Christ and the glory of the Father praising the Father are not in competition. <laughs> They're one. And why? Because the Trinity is real. And when glory and praise is being lifted from your lips to Jesus, and then glory and praise is being lifted from your lips to the Father, you're glorifying God. The one God. 
just as Isaiah 45 said. And before we move on, I do want to say that I know we might be sitting there and this might sound like maybe just unimportant theology, but us understanding this as Christians I think is more important than we might realize at first. And that's because after reading passages like Isaiah 45 in the Old Testament and then seeing how Jesus is praised in the New Testament, people can sometimes start to think, wow, God is going against now what he said. He's no longer the only Savior. He's no longer getting the glory. Instead, Jesus is. And it's arguments like this that lead certain groups like Unitarians who deny the Trinity or Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the deity of Christ or even Muslims who just look at Jesus as a prophet and they say that Jesus cannot be fully God because they're not understanding this connection. Because they say that Jesus being God contradicts things that God says in the Old Testament. Right? For example, they say that Jesus being God would rip the God of Isaiah 45 of the glory he deserves. But again, this is where the Bible is so helpful. And this is why, let's be clear, no one made up the Trinity. (laughs) It's just imposed upon us when we read the Bible carefully, because here and elsewhere, the Bible is clear. Jesus is the Lord as well, and Jesus' glory and praise is not in competition with the glory and praise of the Father. Not at all, because they're one glory. And the Father is glorified by the Son being praised like this. Amen. And that's why this day in the future will not just be to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ as we will all be praising him, but it will also be to the glory and praise of God the Father. Amen. That finally all leads us to our last question. We asked what happened to Jesus, what will happen to Jesus, but now we'll really apply it. What does this have to do with us? For this, I just want to make two quick points. First will be a more obvious application, and then second we'll get an application by digging into what I think might perhaps be the most important word for us in our text this morning. So first, what does it have to do with us? Well, in terms of the obvious application, it has to do with us because we're included in the everyone everywhere. (laughs) And so we're here in this text. And I know that's obvious, but I encourage us to take a second and just let the reality of that sink in. And to do that, Just think of this. I know in our text, right, we're talking about the future, something in the future. And when we talk about the future, and especially when we talk about God and things about God in the future, we often are just prone to think of it all in kind of a fuzzy way, a sort of removed way, not as real. But to see how real this really will be, just compare it with the other things in our poem that we know did happen in the past. We know that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived on this earth from around 5 B.C. to around 30 A.D. We know that this man walked around Palestine and taught and did miracles. We know he was crucified under a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. And finally, we as Christians know that in history, he rose from the dead. And so all that being true of the past, all our text is saying here is just as those events were historically true in the past, so this historical event will take place in the future. We just happen to be in the middle of it. And again, this has to do with us because this means, again, we will be a part of this one day. We're going to say this, and I know we're emphasizing this, but we read this as Bible verses now. But one day we will experience this. In space, time, history, in our real conscious existences. 
And again, I want to emphasize that because, again, let's be honest, in our busy lives, in the daily grind with all the struggles of life, and then, of course, with the constant bombardment of entertainment and news and screens all around us these days, let's be honest, we often, even as Christians, don't think a lot about this. Amen. About this future. But the first application, it's obvious, but it's to really realize how true this is, how this is coming, perhaps even soon, whenever Jesus comes back. And so, Christian, take heart. This is coming. This is real in the future. We will, we will be a part of this one day, and on that day, everyone everywhere will know that Jesus is Lord. Amen. That finally leads us to our second and last application. So what does that have to do with us? First... It has to do with us because we're in this text. We're going to be part of that one day. But second, this has to do with us because of one specific word we find there in verse 11 this morning. As I said earlier, I really do think this might be the most important word for application for us and even for our whole world this morning. And it's that word in verse 11 translated confess in your Bibles. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's why I think this is so important for us in our paragraph. So this word can rightly be translated two different ways, and I think seeing both ways really communicates what's going on here in our passage. And the first way it can be translated is how it is translated, and that's with the word confess. And when we read it that way, as we usually do, we usually assume and, and think about this right, triumphant feeling that we as Christians will have when this day comes. And this is a good thing. It's a right thing because it's true that the day is coming when we as Christians will come together and the whole universe will be with us and we as Christians will joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, so that's the first way that this word can be translated. And we see what's going on there. We see Christians gathering and joyfully confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then there's a second way that word can be translated. And it honestly gets to the other aspect of what's going on here. And that's by translating that word confess with the word admit. Admit. Because that's honestly a good translation of the word too. And if we did that, now verses 10 and 11 read like this. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will admit that Jesus Christ is Lord. And maybe you're feeling why that communicates something slightly different. Because now we see that, yes, for those who already trust in Jesus, this will be a joyful confessing. On that day, we will joyfully confess what we already confess now, and that's that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for people who do not know Christ and trust Christ in this life, what will that day be? Our text says it will be an admitting. Admitting for the very first time in their hearts because they will know that it is true that he is Lord, that he is the Savior. And with that will come the idea that they didn't trust him. And in this way, it won't be a joyful confessing for those who did not trust in Christ. Instead, it will be more of a shocked admittance. Yes, they still will use their very mouths to say Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the text says. But it will be admitting for the very first time, that they didn't embrace the Savior, that they didn't love the living God, that God is real, that he is Jesus Christ, that they didn't trust in him. 
And then will come the judgment, the same judgment that you and I deserve but won't fall on us, not because we're great, but because of the gospel. And so all this means, in answer to our final question, what does this have to do with us? It means that this is not only real and coming, but also this has to do with us because this means that everyone we know, and ourselves included, will either be joyfully confessing or admitting for the first time on that day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in this way, this text should not only give us hope and expectation as Christians for the future as it should, but it should also stir our hearts for the millions and millions and millions of unbelievers who deny Christ's lordship and gospel now. It should stir our hearts to evangelize, to give towards missions, to even consider going on the mission field ourselves, to pray for those we know who do not know Christ, because people on that day will admit that he is Lord. And so our goal should be to reach as many of them with the gospel now as we can, also that they would gladly confess him now rather than admit for the first time on that day. So that's our text. And that's our whole hymn of verses 6 through 11. In these past two weeks, we asked a total of six questions now to summarize this text. And these six questions, when taken together, summarize not only this early Christian poem, but when we take them together, they really summarize the gospel as well, the message of Christianity. First, we asked, who is Jesus? He's God himself. Then we asked, what did he do? He left his throne and became one of us, even a servant. Then we asked, how low did he go? He died, even dying on a cross. Then this week, fourth, we asked him, what happened to him? Well, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name. And he's Lord of all. What will happen to Jesus in the future? Well, everyone everywhere will bow to him and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And sixth and finally, what does this have to do with us? The salvation is available for anyone who trusts in Christ. And the day is coming when every single person will either joyfully confess or admit for the first time that he is Lord. So, brothers and sisters, this is our God. This is our Jesus. This is our gospel. And if you are here and you do not know him, we do ask you to reconsider trusting in Christ this morning because the Bible is clear that everything you read about what Jesus did in this paragraph can be for you if you just trust him. Just trust him. It isn't to be earned or anything by being good. That isn't Christianity. Instead, all it takes is faith. Admitting you need him and trusting in him, even now as your Savior. So again, if you are here this morning and that's you, I really ask you to reconsider trusting in Jesus this morning. But for those of us, church, who do know this Jesus, the one thing I want to end with is us being encouraged by this paragraph. I mean encouraged by it. Because brothers and sisters, this, this beautiful Christ hymn here in verses 6 through 11, this is what we believe as Christians. We don't believe that we're here on this earth mainly to be good or moral or to live our best lives right now. Instead, overall, we believe in, we trust in, we bank our lives on, we rely on this Jesus. And what he did and who he is for us. And that verses 6 through 8 already did happen, and that verses 9 through 11 will happen. So let your faith rest here, brother and sister, in this Jesus, in this Christ. And in doing so, you will find encouragement. 
Because in reality, all of our lives are passing really fast. Our lives are filled with beautiful things and difficult things, but they go by so quickly. But very soon, our Jesus is going to come back and we'll see him face to face. And then finally, we will experience what we read here this morning. And that's that we and the whole universe will bow our knees and will confess with our very mouths that he's our God, that he's our Savior, that he's our loving Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen, brothers and sisters, let's pray.